So Lawrence, who is our, one of our associate ministers, um, he is on his annual winter camping trip up in the Boundary Waters this weekend. And uh, I think Micah Spiegel is also with him. I'm not sure who else is along. They take a few people. Um, and uh, I know some of you have gone, and some of you will never go again, having gone once. I think Ryan, uh, he was telling me last weekend that he went on one of the trips with uh, Leif Erickson. And um, like quickly into the trip, Ryan's water bottle froze, and he said he went 24 hours without, without a drink. And the plan of melting snow to, to drink, uh, especially when it's hard to get a fire going. Anyway, why? It's, it's interesting. Um, and, you know, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time with Lawrence, and uh, we've gone on some trips together. I've never done a winter camping trip. But... Um, there, there are some things that Lawrence really likes that just really involve a lot of suffering. I mean, he just likes to get out there and walk. He, we were up, we, we, he's got this little cabin, and, and it was freezing. Uh, Josh Sleeper and I were up there for a, a night or two with him and, um, about a month ago. And we went out walking in the snow, and, and uh, we were walking across this lake, and he said, you know, I, just, I could just walk all day in the snow, you know, dragging the sled of gear. And Lawrence just really likes to go to places that he's never seen before and that you can never see unless there's ice covering a lake. You know, and so it's, it's, it's interesting because um, it involves a lot of suffering. It involves a lot of suffering. There, there are things we find ourselves doing, like winter camping, that we get some sort of pleasure and fulfillment out of it, but it, it involves a lot of suffering. You know, increasingly, philosophers and sociologists are seeing that, that, the, that the American dream is the pursuit of a life of pleasure and to minimize suffering. That seems to be increasingly where we're headed. But there are also these leading philosophers and sociologists are realizing that this life pursuit to, to minimize suffering and to maximize pleasure um, really doesn't bring us what we want. Paul Bloom is a, a, a Yale professor and sociologist and psychologist. Um, he wrote a book just recently, came out in November of last year. It's called Sweet Spot, Pleasures of Suffering and Search for Meaning. And he's arguing three things. The first thing is that um, certain types of chosen suffering, like winter camping in the Boundary Waters when it's below zero, can actually be sources of pleasure. That's one thing he's arguing. The second thing is that what he has seen in all of his, his, his research and studies is that the well-lived life is much more than just the avoidance of suffering and the pursuing of pleasure. There is moral goodness and meaningful pursuits. These things have to be a part of the good life. Moral goodness and meaningful pursuits. And the third thing he argues is that suffering inevitably is required if you're going to pursue those two things. If you're going to pursue moral goodness, and if you're going to pursue meaning, a meaningful and fulfilling life, it's going to require suffering. So those are the three things that, are, that he's arguing. So, so essentially, we as a people are increasingly uh, less inclined to suffer and are pursuing pleasure at, as much as we can and in, but what, what he's saying is, in fact, that pursuit will end up um, 
undermining what really makes life worthwhile as people. Now, he identifies two types of suffering. There's chosen suffering, which is, again, like what Lawrence does with his winter camping. But then there's suffering that we don't choose. This is where we would be victims, or we would be being abused, or just, just really victims of what a lot of the world is like. Is like. And he argues that it's chosen suffering that, pe- that can be good sources of pleasure. And he, he, he acknowledges that non-chosen suffering, so one of the things that he looks at are, is some of the, the studies and, and writings that have come out of the, the Holocaust and the, the, um, the, uh, the camps there. We have to ask ourselves the question, because most of us don't choose a lot of the suffering that we encounter. What if non-chosen suffering can end up for our good as well? Not just the suffering that we choose that we know is going to end up in being good for us, or know that it's going to be pleasurable for us, but what about the non-chosen suffering? Suffering that we've got no control or mastery over. What if that, even suffering as victims, even suffering as people that are being abused, what if that can and does and should produce good? What if it can, can produce the, the moral goodness? What if it can, can produce the meaningful and fulfilling life? And then if we add God to the mix, as, as if he's never not a part, you know, in our minds we think that God may or may not be a part, but God is everywhere, and the scriptures teach that, that God sustains all things in heaven and on earth through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God is always a part. And as we see here in the people of Israel, and as we see in the life of Moses, what if he uses, in fact, maybe even directs it, maybe he even creates the suffering that he's using to produce good, that he's using to produce meaningfulness. Again, we'll see that that this is exactly what God does for Moses and exactly what God does for Israel. So the book of Exodus starts out, it introduces us to Israel um, about, it's 400 years after the book of Genesis ends. And so Israel's grown from about 100 people to the text says over 600,000 males uh, that are of adult age, and so it's two to three million people. And they are in a state of suffering that they did not choose, that God did know about, and lasted for at least 80 to 100 years. So they're in this place of suffering. Uh, They've gone from one pharaoh to the next. The conditions didn't change. And they begin to cry out for help. It doesn't say that they cried out for God. It says that they began to cry out for help. God heard. So that's chapter 1. Chapter 2 is all about this person, Moses. Moses has had a privileged upbringing in a lot of ways. He's a, he's a son of the, of, in, the, in Pharaoh's family. He's adopted son into Pharaoh's family. And so he was raised with the best education, best military training, best leadership development training they had at the time. Um, he's a natural leader. He is skilled in combat, uh, but he was born as a Hebrew, raised as an Egyptian. Both the Israelites 
and the Egyptians rejected him. He runs away to Midian and marries a Midianite woman, has a Midianite family, but names his son, names his son, I am a Gershom, which means I'm a stranger in a strange land. So Moses, although in terms of himself as an individual person, has a lot of capacities and skills and education, he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know where he belongs to. Is he a Hebrew? Is he an Egyptian? Or is he a Midianite? And he says, I am a stranger in a strange land. So we have, we have Israel in this place of suffering, suffering under the oppressive and harsh slavery and infanticide of Egypt. And we have Moses who's in a place of suffering in that he's been rejected by all of the people that he knows but, and welcomed into a strange family. He's suffering in terms of who am I? What is my life about? And who are really my people? Different types of suffering, but still in a place of suffering. And so we're going to see God working uh, in the nation of Israel and in the person of Moses in God's deliverance of those two entities. So he's going to deliver Israel. He's going to deliver Moses from the suffering that they're experiencing. Um, but he's also going to call them to something. He's going to call them to a purpose. He's going to call them to a to a mission, and we're going to see that their deliverances are connected to their callings, and that they're intertwined. Moses' deliverance and, and calling is, is integrated and intertwined with Israel's deliverance and calling, and vice versa. So what is Israel's calling? Okay, so they're in a place of suffering, but they have a calling, and it's a calling that's been in existence for uh, over the 400 years that they've been there. God has raised a family through the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They will be a nation, they will be a people, and their calling is to be set apart amongst the nations of the world, to be a nation known for righteousness and justice and wholeheartedness in the ways of God. The ways of God and, and righteousness and justice are vastly different than the nations of the world, and God is wanting to use Israel to show that the ways of God are different and that the ways of God are life-giving, that they are life-giving. And it's going to be in contrast to the, to the death-bringing of Egypt. So that's Israel's calling. Moses' is calling is to lead Israel out of Egypt. That's what his calling is. And so God, in, in, in chapter 3, confronts Moses at the burning bush. He's calling Moses to, to be this leader. And then we saw last week in, in Deirdre's message that, you know, Moses is insecure about being this man, even though he's got all this training and all the skills, and the, the, the book of Hebrews later identifies that Moses really did have it all together in a lot of ways, but he was just really insecure about this calling that God had. And so he says, you know, who am I to lead this nation? And God answers, but doesn't answer. He doesn't answer Moses, here's who you are, Moses. He says, here's who I am, Moses. I am the great I am. I'm the eternally existing, always present, all-powerful God. And that's who you need to tell Israel is calling you out from Egypt, the great I am. And so their deliverances and callings are intertwined. To be delivered from suffering, we're going to see, is to be called, from, is to be called by God. 
To be delivered from suffering is to be called. To have a calling is to be delivered. To have a calling is to be delivered from suffering, from suffering that we choose to enter into, from suffering that we do not choose to enter into, and frankly, from the suffering that we cause upon ourselves. So I want to look at what, is it, what does it mean to be delivered? What does it mean to be delivered and called by God? What does it mean to be delivered? So four things. First of all, God has a deep sense of our suffering. We have to believe that. God has a deep sense of our suffering. I know that it's some, sometimes, in fact, maybe a lot of times, it doesn't feel like God is there in our suffering. But we can't let our feelings dictate the eternal character of God. Our feelings aren't the barometer that we use to, to understand the nature and the character of God. We have, we have if we have walked with the Lord or if we have observed people walking with the Lord for a long time, we can know from our experience that God's character is not, in, is not consistent with our feelings. And we have the written word of God that has thousands of years of God's work in his people that gives us a base of truth and foundations in the person and character of God. So we have to recognize that God does indeed have a deep sense of our suffering. It said that, that, you know, during those many days, this is verses 23 through 25 out of Exodus uh, chapter 2, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw the people and God knew. So God hears when we cry out in our pain. God remembers that he's not, only, he's not only made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to make them a nation. God has made a covenant with humanity. God has made a covenant with all nations and all peoples to bring life from death to the promised child who turned out to be the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's covenant with all humanity. God has not forgotten that covenant, that promise to all humanity. So God knows the suffering that we're in. <clears throat> God remembers the covenant that he made with all people. God sees. God sees. He hears our cries, but he sees what's going on that has led to our cries. He sees what's going on in our lives that leads to suffering. And then it says that God knew. God knew their affliction. God, God knows our pain. God knows our pain. He hears our cries, he sees how we're afflicted, and he knows the pain that it's creating inside of us emotionally, and he remembers that he has promised to deliver all people through Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. God has a deep sense of our suffering. The second thing is that God's timing to deliver us isn't always on our, in fact, it's not usually on our schedule. We may, and we may never know why? You know, the book of Job, probably the earliest written book in all of the Bible, is really a story about the classic question, why do, God, why do good people suffer? Job had no idea why he was going through what he was going through. He didn't know why it lasted as long as it did. He doesn't know why God wasn't answering his prayers. He doesn't know why God didn't give, a, give him a sense of his presence. 
God's timing to deliver us isn't on our schedule. And so as we see here the nation of Israel, they have been enslaved under harsh treatment, their babies being killed for about a hundred years. Why would God wait so long if he's going to deliver them? Why wait so long to deliver them? That's, that's several generations. Some of those people were crying out and never experienced God's deliverance for themselves individually in their lifetimes. It doesn't seem fair. But one of the things we have to recognize is that our, just like Moses and Israel's deliverances and callings are intertwined. We, in and of ourselves, are never the whole picture. Amazing, isn't it? We are connected to the family of God, the local church. We are connected as a family. We, as a local church, are connected to all the other local churches in America, in this nation, and around the world. And, and those, that global family of local churches, what the scriptures call the kingdom of God also, we're connected to uh, an eternal work of God that he is doing with all of the nations of the world throughout history. I think we might be doing Daniel sometime in the next year or two, and you can see that there is this massive, cosmic, eternal work of God in the nations and Dan, the book of Daniel covers centuries and centuries and centuries, uh, millennia in fact, um, about God's purposes. And so we have to recognize that a lot of the times the suffering that we go through, we're going through not because of necessarily any fault of our own or any special purposes that God has for us, but because we're just a part of a larger unfolding work that God is working out through Jesus Christ. I mean, if we think about, if we just think about the, the unfortunate 250 years of slavery in North America. We, we can see the effects of slavery now. And it's growing in its significance in some ways. And it was, a, it was a, a harsh and brutal and an unfortunate time. But if it had only lasted a few years, let's say it only lasted a decade, it wouldn't continue to be having the effect that it's having now negatively it should have it was 250 years too long but we can see that these extended periods of suffering have an effect over time with that in that instance it's very negative but here we have God choosing to delay his deliverance for Israel for at least 180 to 100 years. And so we have to ask the question, why? Why is it so essential that Israel experience this long of a season of suffering? Well, it's because that longer seasons of suffering have a greater impact on us that leads to a greater experience of joy and gratitude later. And so God was wanting to create, and we're going to see this as it unfolds, God was wanting to create a national experience of gratitude, a national historical experience of suffering that would lead to a greater national experience of joy and gratitude in the, in the future. And this story about Israel's deliverance from Egypt is going to be the narrative for Israel. In fact, the narrative that Jesus then piggybacks on, when he comes on the scene, he has the last Passover 
before his death, and it's the final Passover from a kingdom of God biblical perspective. It's the final Passover. Jesus is the final lamb. We're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. Jesus is the final lamb. He's the final sacrifice. He's the final priest. He's the final temple. So Jesus is piggybacking, Jesus' deliverance is piggybacking on the story of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And so this is, this is going to be the story of, of Israel forever. And so God is maximizing the suffering to maximize the positive effects of that suffering. Right? To bring it back down into a, you know... It, the colder it is and the longer they have to walk and the least amount of physical pleasures that they have is going to maximize Lawrence's joy in his winter camping experience, all right? Now, you, you all engage in some form of suffering for a, to maximize, I mean, moms, you have children. <laughs> I mean, if that, that's probably the maximum suffering, but it's also maximum joy. You know, if, you, if you train for any sort of, of you know, athletic event, you, know, you endure a lot of hours of, of, of training and jogging or running or swimming or biking or whatever it may be. Or if you're, if you're training for some sort of, of, of uh, event, performing arts event, whether it's theater or music or whatever it may be, you had lots of hours of training for just a few moments of, of a performance, but it's all worth it, right? And that's the idea. That's the idea. So that's the second thing. God's timing in our deliverance has some future good in mind that he is trying to maximize to bring about moral goodness and a greater degree of meaning and fulfillment, which is what the secular psychologist said is the, one of the good reasons that we suffer. The third thing God's deliverance, then, is ultimately for our happiness and prosperity. God's deliverance is ultimately for our happiness and prosperity. And so um, he said, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt into a place big enough for six nations. You're going you're to inhabit a nation that has been supplying the needs of six nations. And it's a place that's going to be flowing with milk and honey, which is a metaphor for just an abundant material prosperity. So God's deliverance through the suffering, from the suffering and through the suffering, is, is so that we can experience happiness and prosperity, which is, the, which is one of the themes throughout Scripture. Psalm chapter, chapters 1 and 2, that, that God, those who fear the Lord and to walk with him, ultimately experience prosperity and happiness if they're oriented to fear the Lord under the king. It was Jesus. So we experience the material prosperity. One of the things that we're also going to see that brings, a part, brings that experience of material prosperity and happiness to fullness is that we dwell in the presence of God. And so we're going to see here that throughout the book of Exodus, that this is actually one of the, the big themes that God is trying to bring us back. Remember in chapter, chapter 3, it says, and God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And it's one of the most vivid pictures. You know, imagine a springtime, I mean, which is, you know, I'm imagining it all the time these days. Um, imagine a springtime garden filled with blossoming flowers 
gentle breezes. You can hear water and streams and rivers. Everything is green and bright colors. And, and there's God. There's God. And man and woman, man and woman were with him. That scene is where, is where God is. He, is. he is pressing with all of his energies to bring us back to that point. And in a, and in a greater experience of that. His presence is what gives us the ability to experience the prosperity and the happiness. One of the big messages out of, uh, of another wisdom book, Ecclesiastes. There are a lot of people with material goods that are not happy. Material prosperity does not bring happiness. It says God is the one who brings happiness. God is the one who brings happiness. So that's what God's deliverance is ultimately for. So number one, God deeply senses our suffering. Number two, the timing of God's deliverance from our suffering is, is a big question. But it's there for the maximizing of our, of our pleasure and our fulfillment. And three, it's ultimately for our happiness and prosperity. And then number four, God delivers and saves for a purpose. That we may serve him. That we may serve him. One of the the commentaries that I'm reading, uh, Leon Cass's book, uh, Founding a Nation, reading Exodus, um, he, he's been teaching, no longer does, he's retired from there, but he, he taught uh, Genesis and Exodus at the University of Chicago in his philosophy class for two decades. It's not a, if you're not aware, the University of Chicago is not a Bible school or seminary. He's teaching it as, a, as one of the great books that leads to a wise life. As a, he's a secular man. He's not a, he's not a believer. And most of his students were not. But he sees a lot of wisdom in Genesis and Exodus. And he says one of the, one of the big pushbacks that he is constantly getting when he goes through Exodus is his, his students are all surprised. Well, God isn't bringing them out of Egypt to be free. God's bringing them out of slavery in Egypt so they can become slaves of him. And he's like, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> as, as, as Paul says in Romans 6, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Going back to that original calling upon Abraham, that they would be a people of righteousness and justice who walk in my ways wholeheartedly. God does not call us, or excuse me, God does not deliver us from suffering just so that we can go about on our own personal agendas and keep, keep to our own selfish selves. You know, the story of us without God is Genesis 1 through 11. We all end up killing ourselves. That's what we do. We, we are violent, angry, and destructive people that self-destruct. Um, this just came to mind. Metallica's got a song. It's the name of their last album, Hardwired. In fact, it's the name of the album, Hardwired to Self-Destruct. That's their observation of humanity, that we are hardwired to self-destruct. That's Genesis 1 through 11. So God can't just free us and say, hey, you guys go enjoy yourselves. Because it kill, we, we kill ourselves as a people. And you know, when you, you read in the Gospels, Jesus, Jesus delivers people from sickness, he delivers people from hunger, and he keeps doing it 
until they, until they start ignoring his words. When they start ignoring his words, because he says, you know, you know, follow me, repent of your sin. They stop, they, 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 they don't want to. And so what does Jesus do? He stops healing and he stops feeding. John chapter 6. God calls us and delivers us for a purpose so that we can serve him. Verse 12 of chapter 3. I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And when we are serving the Lord and fulfilling his call upon our lives to pursue righteousness and justice and to walk in his ways with wholeheartedness, what that does then is that it creates a pursuit of righteousness and, moral, and, and a fulfilling of moral goodness. It also creates a sense of belonging because what has God called us to? God has called us into a family. When we are baptized with the Holy Spirit and sealed with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, scriptures also teach, 1 Corinthians 13, that we have been baptized into the family of God. We have been baptized into his body. It is never an individual thing. So God isn't only delivering us from suffering. God isn't only just calling us to a, a place of holiness and moral righteousness. He's calling us into a people, and that calling into a people gives us a sense of belonging. Moses is going to see that his answer to who he is Yes, he's a Hebrew. Yes, he's an Egyptian. Yes, he's a Medianite. But first and foremost, he is a child of God called to his people. Called to his people. Called to him. And that gives us a sense of an eternal place. An eternal place. Again, Ecclesiastes says that, you know, all of us are born with this desire in our heart to know where we fit into eternity. And without God, we cannot answer that question. We cannot answer that question. And so God delivering us from our suffering and calling us into his purpose answers these big questions. And it puts us in a meaningful, meaningful pursuit. Again, that even the, the sociologists and psychologists that don't know God at our, at our time recognize as needs that we have as human beings. So what if suffering, so what if in our suffering we're not seeing these things happen? We're not seeing good come out of it. Uh, we feel worse and worse, and we just keep getting worse and worse. So if it's supposed to create moral goodness, but we just keep sliding morally, and if it's supposed to, keep, if it's supposed to create a sense of, of meaning or fulfillment and joy and gratitude when it's over, it's not doing any of those things, Why? Why isn't God delivering at times? Well, what, because even when he's not delivering, it should be producing the moral goodness. It should be producing some things. So we may not be able to say, oh, God has delivered me. I am so thankful. I'm so joyous. I'm so grateful. If he's not doing that, and we're hanging in there, it should be producing some other effects. So if, those, if, not, if we're not being delivered, if those other effects aren't happening, why? 
Because God has promised to deliver us, and God has promised to create those, those effects. James chapter 1, consider pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the trials create perseverance and hope and character. That is a promise. It is a promise that we can be delivered from those things. A few reasons why we may not be. First one is that if we continue to, if we, if we pursue in our belief that we are victims and that's where we stay, then what we will be doing is blaming other people and blaming circumstances for the problems in our lives. Now, it may very well be that other people and, and our circumstances are creating suffering that we have no control over. That's the unchosen suffering that we generally don't like. We don't see how, it's, how good it's going to come about. But if we don't see that regardless of why I'm suffering, if we're not using the suffering to pursue these other means, then we're not going to experience the deliverance of God. Second thing is, is you know, oftentimes we don't cry out to God for help. And sometimes we don't cry out to God for help because we don't feel like we deserve it. Sometimes we feel like we deserve the suffering that we're going through. Why would I ask God to help out? I, I have caused this. I need to get myself out of it. I'm not going to ask God for help. Well, again, uh, that's the story of Genesis 1 through 11, hardwired to self-destruct. Without God, we're not going to get out of the mess that we're in. And we just, there, there's, a, there's that strong desire to be, righteousness, to be righteous in and of ourselves that the scriptures say only Jesus Christ can fulfill. When we recognize that we need God's help, and when we recognize that God has provided it through Jesus Christ to regenerate and to wash and to renew us, it's the promise, to make us new. We need to be new. When we believe that we need God, and we, and we discover that Jesus Christ has been given to meet that need, and the Holy Spirit then comes into us, we are, we are made new. And that's what enables us then to overcome and to pursue righteousness. We cannot be righteous on our own. So sometimes we just don't ask God for help because we don't believe we, de we need it or deserve it or that he wants to give it. Number three, sometimes we shortcut the process. We're, we're, we're engaged in the suffering. We're longing for deliverance. But we give in too soon. And we, we fall the temptation to somehow bring relief to our suffering. This is the classic, classic example of, of gluttony or substance abuse or sexual immorality. Things that bring some immediate joy or some immediate pleasure. I mean, for my entire life, that, I mean, I have used food. Food is just so comforting. Food is just so comforting. And so, so oftentimes we, we have these things that we rely upon to bring us some short-term relief and it really, it really cuts God out of the process because, you know, again, James chapter 1 says that let suffering have its full effect. Sometimes we cut off the suffering and it hasn't yet had its full effect. And we don't know what the full effects are. God knows. But he calls us to righteousness. He calls us to righteousness. And so sometimes we shortcut that process. Now, we're not going to be perfect. But when we do shortcut the process, there needs to be confession, repentance, and, 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 and acknowledgement of our continued need for God and for his people to help us. Number four, a lot of times we just want to be delivered for freedom's sake, and we don't really want to be delivered 
in order to serve. We don't want to be delivered in order to serve. The, the, another proverb, uh, it says, do not rescue a fool. You'll only have to do it again. God isn't, he's not going to just keep rescuing us as fools. Because <laughs> he's just going to have to keep doing it. What he wants to see in us is a desire for the pursuit of righteousness, again, which we're not going to be perfect. And there's a whole, you know, we were reading through 1 John as a family. There's this idea of walking in the light. Walking in the light doesn't mean you're perfect. Walking in the light means you're wholehearted. There's a desire for righteousness, but when you fail, there's a confession of sin. That's what walking in the light is. Walking in the darkness is, is we're not walking in a wholehearted way. We sin, but we deny we sin, and we just keep trying to convince ourselves and everybody else that we, don't, that we don't sin. And that's walking in the darkness. What God wants us to do is walk in the light. We walk in the light. And so again, perfection isn't the goal. It's, it's pursuing righteousness, confessing sin, walking in a wholehearted way with God and his people, which means you're staying in relationships with people. You're not pulling back and in, in, in secluding yourself from others. God wants to dwell with us. He wants to make us a people. And, and that, that means he's calling us into a, a people. And many of us pursue a church for a variety of things, but we, we find that once we get ourselves involved in the life of a church, we become much more fuller. Whether we're, some people join a church, you know, I, I need to find a spouse. Okay, well, boom. And that, but yet there's something much greater than just a spouse. There's a fullness of life that comes with the teaching of the gospel and a community life. Or there's a particular sin that I want to overcome and I need some help from, you know, all kinds of reasons why people join churches. But, but, but there's a much fuller experience when we're brought into the people of God and are committed to, them, to his purposes. And ultimately, God's deliverance comes through his son, as we've said. You know, we, we can see, again, we don't know why we don't know why we suffer and why God doesn't deliver sin. But again, we, know, we, we can't say that he doesn't care because he, is, he has given and sacrificed his son to ultimately deliver us from ourselves and from sin and from, from the sins of others. And we can see in Jesus that suffering isn't the end of his story. He, he asked God, God, if there's any way that I could get out of this, I'd like to know. But your will be done, not mine. But he goes through the suffering, and he scorned the shame, the emotional pain, the physical pain of the suffering, because he knew it would produce a greater joy on the other end. And not only that, an inheritance as an entire family. He didn't have that before. Father, Son, and Spirit enjoyed each other's unity and fellowship and perfect love. But when, when Christ rose from the dead and, and went to the right hand of the Father, he then became, he then had, then had an inheritance, us. Us, his people. It's a greater joy. God is never, his promise to deliver has never fallen short or remain unfulfilled. Let me pray. Lord God, uh, thank you for this, this word. Thank you for calling us and in that calling, delivering us. Help us to see, God, how they are intertwined. Help us to, to um, recognize that there is a great joy and pleasure 
in your presence and help us, God, to endure the suffering that is in this life in such a way that maximizes our experience of your presence and your deliverance in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.